the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, covering monetary, economic, and geopolitical news events. You know, I do subscribe to the view that the value of gold tends to correspond inversely to central bank credibility, right? When everybody's confident in central bankers, then why hold gold as much? So I feel we're moving in the direction of a crisis of confidence for both policymaking and financial assets more generally, and, and I think that bodes very well for gold and the precious metals. So as a longer-term store of value, the way I see things lining up, I personally much prefer hard assets to financial assets. Now here are Kevin Oreck and David McIlvaney. Welcome to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. I'm really looking forward to this, Dave. You came over to my desk yesterday and you said, we're going to have Doug Noland on. And I said, gosh, I think we need to have him on more often. But you, you told me the story. You, you know, most of us, we work Monday to Friday and we turn things off on Saturday morning. I know you go ski with the family, but before you ski with the family, you wake up, you look at the credit bubble bulletin, okay, which is Doug Nolan's report. And you told me this week, you said, you know, after everything that was happening last week, you hadn't even put your contacts in. You were just looking at a blurry screen, but you started to realize, oh, my gosh, we're going to have to have him on because things are dramatically changing, especially in the credit markets. And Doug's the right person to bring that into focus. So thanks, Doug, for joining us uh, again on this week's commentary. Oscar Wilde said, I wouldn't give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity, but I'd give my very life for simplicity on the other side. And there are some simple takeaways at the end of the conversation with Doug Noland today, but I want you to appreciate how important it is to dig into some of the details and some of the complexity of the credit markets as we look at significant pivots in the, the global credit markets and the global financial system. Doug, you and I have had the privilege of working together. It's been my privilege to work with you since 2017. And you manage our, our tactical short product. And uh, I remember years and years ago, having read the Credit Bubble Bulletin and posed a question to you, what would it look like to someday work together? And, and so that that has become a reality. And I love it. Um, thank you for being on the team. I want to cover as much ground as we can today. And so yeah, our clients probably know your background, uh, perhaps for the sake of new listeners to the weekly commentary, you could give a little background as a CPA, as a writer, as an analyst of money and credit, and as a portfolio manager for the last 30 years. Sure, David. And, you know, thanks a lot for having me. And it's great to work with you. I love the relationship. And it's an honor to be on the weekly commentary. I listen to you and Kevin every week. And I, I'm always just so impressed. So nice to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling kind of old. You know, I, I guess I'm just, a, you know, I say I'm a small town, uh, working class kid from Oregon, uh, proud, graduated at the University of Oregon, accounting, finance. I loved finance back then. I tolerated accounting. I became a CPA just to get the certification. It was a great experience at Pricewaterhouse. And then uh, one of many of my lucky breaks, I left Pricewaterhouse, moved down to Los Angeles and was a treasury analyst at Toyota's U.S. headquarters down there. And what a great experience, great people sitting on a trading desk, fixed income trading desk back in 1987 with lots of volatility, currencies, bonds, stocks, and then the crash in 87. And I just fell in love with the markets and with macro analysis. Went back and received my MBA from Indiana University. Then another lucky break, uh, 
began working for a uh, very successful bearish hedge fund manager back in 1990. Just an incredible learning experience, uh, tough experience, but uh, great learning experience. And I'll just mention, David, for me, 1990 was such a key year. Not only that was my first year in, in investment management working for a hedge fund, but also I was exposed to the brilliant work of Dr. Kurt Rischebosher, a German economist who had a newsletter. He was a chief economist for Dresdner Bank and just loved economics, loved Austrian economics, learned a tremendous amount from him. 1990 was also a year where we were going into recession. The banking system was severely impaired. And then I watched over years how that very impaired economic financial system morphed into this great bull market economic prosperity. I was on the wrong side of the markets working for basically a mainly short hedge fund. So a lot of sleepless nights trying to understand what was going on, invaluable learning experience. I then uh, left the hedge fund industry back uh, and joined David Tyson, the Prudent Bear Fund at the beginning of 1999. So had seen a number of crises to that point. By that time also, I was convinced that finance had fundamentally changed. Uh, you know, I watched Fannie and Freddie act as quasi-central banks beginning in 1994, watched the evolution away from banking finance to market-based finance, asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities. I mentioned the GSEs, derivatives, Wall Street finance. So then, working for David Tice in 1999, I, I decided I would start writing my blog before it was called a blog, uh, the Credit Bubble Bulletin. And just chronicling on a weekly basis this phenomenal evolution of finance, evolution of policymaking, evolution of economic structure. It's just been an incredible experience. You know, left Prudent Bear and then came to work with you and then keep working in the markets and keep chronicling the what I, it clear to me is, you know, the greatest global bubble in, in history. Multiple times a week, we look at various indicators. And this last week, there were divergences between the equity markets and these indicators and suggesting that there's stress within the credit markets that the equity markets were not picking up on. I want to come back to that in a minute. You also refer to models that give some explanatory power to what's happening as risk starts at the periphery of the financial markets and then moves to the core. Could you elaborate on that periphery to core model? Sure. Yeah. And this is the periphery to core framework. Think in terms of you know, we have this new financial structure. It's unlimited finance, fiat finance, right? It's not the old days where the banks restrained credit growth through lending. This is just a, you know, financial free-for-all here. So when financial conditions are loose and risk is being embraced, this finance will tend to flow to the riskiest assets where, you know, expected returns are higher. For example, the higher risk emerging market debt or junk bonds, right? If everything's stable and there's all you know liquidity abundance, you might as well get that extra return. So during the boom, finance flows to the periphery where it gets higher returns. So these risky areas comprise the periphery of the risk spectrum with the core being the perceived safer assets, say, you know, treasuries, investment grade credit and such. So this framework, it's trying to discern the flow of finance at the margin, okay, at the margin. Again, when times are good and the hedge funds are increasing leverage, this finance will tend to flow to the periphery and this will tend to feed on itself. And when, you know, the riskier borrowers have such easy access to finance, 
they will appear less risky. And that's junk bonds, emerging market bonds. Wherever the risk is, it'll appear less risky and only more finance will flow their way. And that's kind of a bubble dynamic, bubble dynamic. But there's always this latent fragility at the periphery. So if these high-risk borrowers lose access to cheap finance, you know, they can find themselves unable to service all this debt they've accumulated during the boom. And we've seen this over the years repeatedly. And it's at the risky credits. They will always be the first place where the sophisticated players, the hedge funds and such, they'll look to pair risk if they begin to take on less risk. And what begins with you know subtle changes in the flow of finance can morph into destabilizing reversals of speculative finance and deleveraging. We want to be on top of this dynamic. And it's this deleveraging that just sucks liquidity out of the system, first at the periphery. But as the risk profile of the periphery deteriorates and liquidity becomes more of an issue, then concerns begin to shift from the periphery to the core, to the perceived safe areas of the marketplace. And when de-risking, deleveraging gains momentum at the core, that's when crisis dynamics turn more serious. And I've witnessed this, you know, repeatedly over the decades. And recall, uh, you know, I'm rambling here, but recall an example back with the subprime eruption in June of 2007. And then it took 15 months for this dynamic to make its way to the core. And then the core erupted with, you know, the collapse of Lehman Brothers. And one last point, it's not uncommon for trouble at the periphery to initially stoke excesses at the core. So that's something we have to be mindful of also. You know, subprime problems initially, you know, stoked the flow of finance and speculative excess into AAA-rated mortgage-backed securities. And that extended that boom, but it only compounded, you know, systemic fragilities. But that's kind of the way the periphery to the core framework works. We've got drama in the markets over the last week to 10 days. There's no coincidence you're Joining us on the weekly commentary today, for months we've had China that's been under pressure, particularly the developer sector. And in the same time frame, the central bank community has been forced to respond to inflation. First, the Bank of England. We've got two rate increases so far. Then the Fed talking about tightening. And now the ECB. Walk us through the progression of pressures building and inflation pushing the issues from obscurity to center stage. Okay, I'll give it my best shot. From a high level, okay, so this is an extraordinary global bubble environment, unlike the previous bubble experiences. And this is a global dynamic. And these markets and economies globally have become highly synchronized, and they're all fueled by, you know, extremely loose global financial conditions, this central bank liquidity and government and private sector debt excess. It's basically, it's everywhere, right? So global bubble dynamics. It's a phenomenon internationally. And we're now seeing serious cracks in all the major bubbles. And generally, people don't connect them. They think they're all, you know, in Wall Street, they'll say idiosyncratic risk, right? Well, these are all related, okay? So these initial cracks are also all occurring where one would expect them to first. And these are the areas that experienced the greatest excess during the boom. For example, in China, we're witnessing the collapse of their massive apartment and real estate developer industry. In the real estate developer industry, it's upwards of $5 trillion of debt. I mean, it's, it's crazy how much money that, that, that was borrowed. You know, we hear of Evergrande at $300 billion of liabilities. Well, there, there's a bunch of other ones that are huge also. And this was the key source of finance for China's historic apartment bubble. We're now seeing cracks there. In the U.S., 
we're seeing cracks now in the technology stocks, the big technology stocks. You know, these companies that have no profits, no cash flows, they're just been part of this mania, right? The historic speculative, and I call it an arms race of spending excess. So we're seeing cracks there, which is where you would expect to see initial cracks. And now in Europe, especially last week, there are cracks in the peripheral debt markets, Italy, Greece, Spain, Portugal. These are highly leveraged economies that because of the euro currency and all the ECB buying their QE, you know, they've been able to continue to borrow at extremely favorable rates. The problem is that monetary stimulus, it just got completely out of hand, right? We had five trillion from the Fed, many trillions more from the ECB, Bank of England, and others. System debt growth, you know, it spiraled completely out of control, especially here in the U.S. and China. I mean, the numbers are just unbelievable. So not surprisingly, inflation has become a major issue. And now the major central banks are being forced, right? They have no choice. They have to pivot away from zero rates and massive liquidity injections. So this is leading to reduced appetites for risk-taking and leverage, which is translating into waning liquidity excess. And we're witnessing this in global markets, uh, the bond markets, as well as the risk markets, you know, corporate credit, emerging markets, high-yield debt, and manic uh, speculative bubbles. They do not respond well to even a subtle increase in risk aversion. So that's how I kind of try to tie all these different developments into one kind of global bubble framework. So, Madam Inflation, as the press has taken to calling Christian Lagarde uh, head of the ECB, finally conceded she was wrong last week. Mid-December, she was entrenched and that inflation was not going to be an issue. Now she's staring at very uncomfortable data. Inflation in Germany, north of 5%. Spain, north of 6 Italy, 5.3%. Austria, 5.1%. France, a modest 3.3%. If inflation is now broad-based and enduring, how does this impact credit? How does the impact to credit further affect other asset classes? And then just kind of keep in sure. mind the audience sure. of a retiree, a homeowner, and you tie that into, how is it relevant for me? Sure, sure. So as far as Lagarde, and I think at the December 16th ECB meeting, where after the meeting, you know, she completely dismissed inflation and voiced this determination not to begin raising rates until at least 2023. And at the time, you, you just kind of scratch your head. Uh, so she and the ECB, they had no choice but to change course, right? It was obvious uh, they had to change course. So let me say here that, you know, global central bankers, they were really hoping that inflation was transitory. They know these markets will respond very poorly to a central bank tightening cycle. And these bankers were hoping that if they delayed the process long enough, that inflation, you know, inflationary pressures, they would subside and, you know, everybody would be happy. They wouldn't have to tighten. The markets would be happy and everything would be great. Well, they gambled, a huge gamble, and they lost, clearly. Inflationary pressures, they've taken root. Inflationary expectations have changed. And if you look, right, workers are demanding higher compensation. Companies, you know, they're growing. You'll listen to the conference calls every quarter, and companies are growing very comfortable, raising prices. Behaviors are changing. And keep in mind that inflation at this point is a global phenomenon. It's not like the Fed can say, okay, we're going to get inflation in check. Well, yeah, it's not going to be that easy. It's a global phenomenon. Uh, so central bankers now, they have a much more difficult time because they really have to rein in monetary excess to try to slow down inflation. And at this point, to change inflationary expectations will require inflicting pain. That's 
the way it happens, right? We haven't been in this situation for a while. We all either know or read of the situation with Volcker and how tough that was. Basically, they're going to have to raise rates until the markets buckle. Unfortunately, that's the way this is going to play out, I think. And that means borrowing costs are going up. That means we're going to borrow more to buy homes. We're going to borrow more to buy cars, credit cards. That means our our mortgage payments go up. Our monthly auto payments go up. Our credit card bills, if we want to pay down our balances, we're going to have to pay a higher interest rate and such. While the asset markets are very vulnerable too, stocks, treasuries, corporate credit, they're all susceptible to tighter conditions and speculative leveraging. So unfortunately, there's a real risk here that that we get hit with higher inflation, higher monthly payments on our debt, and weakening wealth from our portfolios of assets. You know, unfortunately, David, it's just a, a very troubling backdrop that we're all going to have to deal with here. So we have a central bank playbook, which has included a lot of talking. And, you know, the forward guidance, the Draghi-esque 2011 verbals, we'll do whatever it takes. That's been in motion for some time now. What happens to the financial markets when talking is no longer sufficient for you know, perception management or market impact? Yeah, we in a new stage where you know, maintaining credibility is a tough and B comes at a higher cost. Exactly. Yeah, I think central bank credibility, it's already taken a big hit here. We haven't really recognized it yet, but it's taken a big hit. I doubt many believe that the Fed will actually orchestrate the type of aggressive policy tightening necessary to rein in inflation. The markets certainly believe that they have the central banks trapped and I think, you know, the the Fed had credibility that they would backstop the markets, but I I don't think they've had credibility on inflation for a while. Uh, And if you look at the talk of tightening these days, it's not having much impact on the booming commodities market. So the commodities market is not thinking there's a big tightening coming. So central bankers over the years, they developed this credibility to keep, you know, the stock market boom sustained. And now that's going to come back to haunt them because, the, you know, they have these market bubbles out there expecting ongoing support while inflation, you know, it takes root and, and causes a lot of pain within a society already under stress. And I, I worry that uh, when markets falter, there will be, you know, a problematic crisis of confidence in central banking. I, I fear it's going to be just one more institution that, you know, lacks public confidence and trust. And that's a place where we don't want to be. We've never wanted to be there. And, you know, the central banks have put us in in jeopardy by all this money printing and market intervention over decades, unfortunately. Well, as I said earlier, there's no coincidence you joining us today. On the one hand, equities globally looked decent by the end of the week last week. But how different were the credit market indicators? Yeah, it was really interesting. Another fascinating week last week. You know, and I follow, and David, you know, we, I should say we, because, you know, we discuss these, we follow these together, a mosaic of indicators. And basically, they all are essentially sending a similar message. The environment is changing. And that was very clear last week. The cost of market insurance is rising. And that's very important in my framework. And the cost of insurance you know, I follow a lot of credit default swap prices, which is the cost of insuring against default for corporate and sovereign debt. And all of these CDS prices, all of this market insurance, the price has been rising of late, and that's for investment grade bonds, high yield bonds, emerging markets, 
even sovereign bonds, and importantly, even for the big financial institutions. And they really started, CDS for the big banks started to really move last week. In many cases, the cost of this insurance has jumped back to where it was back in 2020. We're also seeing corporate credit spreads, and that's something that you know, we follow closely also. And that's the difference between the yields, how much the treasury pays when it borrows, and how much corporations pay when they borrow. When times are good, corporations can borrow at small spreads over treasuries, not that much of a premium over treasuries. When the market starts to get more nervous, corporations have to pay more. And we're starting to see that dynamic. And these indicators, they're signaling heightened risk aversion. They're signaling waning liquidity, which is problematic for a world of vulnerable speculative bubbles and all of these economies that have come to be addicted to loose finance. And last week, this was last Friday, I uh, titled my uh, CBB, A Changing World. The indicators are telling me that the cycle is turning. And granted, we've seen backdrops like this before, where some you know, somewhat serious cracks in the bubble were appearing. And in each case, central bank intervention reversed these dynamics and bubbles inflated ever larger and the markets became ever more comfortable that this was the dynamic they could always count on. Well, this time, things are different. At least they look different to me. Inflation is a serious problem. And there's now you know, a significant cost to bailing out the markets with additional monetary stimulus. And that cost is higher inflation for everyone and the cost that imposes on society. And it also, uh, the part of the cost here is a crisis of confidence in central banking. So, yeah, these indicators, to me, I'm on my toes now. I come in more diligent than ever to try to discern where these stresses are starting to build. Doug, there was a shift in tone in the credit bubble bulletin, and it was better than a cup of coffee on Saturday morning. It's it's 7 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. I don't have my contacts in. I'm looking at my phone, reading the CBB, kind of bleary-eyed, and I just had this sense of, uh uh-oh. (laughs) <laughs> because y- your tone shifted on the basis of the indicators shifting and, you know, something as simple as European bank stocks going higher. Well, that's great. Everyone's happy about that. And yet the credit default swaps for European banks were also going higher. Not something that everyone's looking at, but it says in a subtle way, uh-oh, somebody's got this wrong. And it's really not the people who are insuring against default. <laughs> You've got a little too much enthusiasm there. So, you know, before I headed off to ski on Saturday, I'm thinking, man, we need to have a conversation because there are some things that are shifting we haven't had in motion for some time and inflation inflation seems to be the fulcrum for central bankers and it seems to be universally rising after decades of loose credit and declining rates and low levels of consumer inflation we've had asset price inflation of course but low levels of consumer inflation now we're entertaining tightening of credit rising rates higher levels of consumer inflation and for investors, we got to consider, well, what are the in- adjustments to price that this implies, specifically the price of assets? It's a great question, David. It's also a really tough one. With all the global fragility, you know, there's a clear possibility of a synchronized bursting of bubbles that could lead to, you know, a major contraction of speculative leverage and resulting, you know, disinflationary pressures on asset prices and related price levels. You know, we, we've seen this before, right? We've been to this movie before. We... You know, the, the 2008-2009 crisis, you know, significant deflationary, disinflationary forces globally. And I think this dynamic helps explain 
why with inflation running at 7% year over year, uh, 10-year yields remain you know, just slightly below 2%. I think the bond markets are sniffing out that there's risk here in the inflation backdrop. Certainly, you know, I won't go into too much detail, but in the market, there's the five-year, they call it the break-even, the 10-year break-even. It's the market pricing in different inflation scenarios over five years and 10 years. Right now, over 10 years, they're not fearful of a lot of inflation because of, I think, the global bubble risk. At the same time, though, inflationary pressures in consumer and producer goods and commodities, you know, they've gained powerful momentum more today than in the past. Um, now, I could see consumer inflation withstanding faltering asset bubbles. I expect governments around the world, they will continue to run massive deficit spending programs. Moreover, I'm, I'm skeptical that central banks will be able to turn off the monetary spigot here. I, I'm skeptical. I expect the Fed, you know, they're going to have to resort to more balance sheet growth as it acts as buyer of last resort in a, in a market crisis. And, you know, they're not going to respond immediately. I don't expect them to respond as quickly as they have in the past. But if we get into a crisis environment, they're going to be out there printing more money. So I believe the bias for consumer and hard asset prices will be higher. But this is something, you know, we're going to be monitoring this daily, really, on, on a real-time basis. There's just a lot of moving parts to the analysis. Now, the policymaking backdrop, market dynamics, geopolitics, the pandemic, and so on. So a lot of moving parts, and we're going to have to be at our best here as analysts to navigate through this. Well, coming back to this week and the move for Lagarde, the, the pivot, so to say, we've got European bond rates moving off of a very low base, of course, and, and we don't tend to pay much attention to a few basis points move. But in this case, you're talking, again, off of a very low base, European bonds are rising 21%, 40%, 50%. In the case of German boons, you know, they're up six times off of very microscopic levels. But yeah, six times. Is it conceivable that this experiment with negative nominal yields is now behind us? I mean, that's got to be disappointing for policymakers. They actually believe that they determine that reality. Right. I mean, this is this grand experiment that's been going on, really going back to Greenspan, where he started tinkering with the markets and promoting non-bank credit growth and marketable credit growth and, and such. But I was reading an, an article the other day. It was uh, a Chinese policymaker, and he was responding to a question if he expected the People's Bank of China to, down the road, resort to uh, negative interest rates if they face significant problems, systemic problems. And his response was, well, you know, we've looked at this and we see no evidence that they've been beneficial and we see plenty of evidence that they've led to excess. So, you know, it's, it's kind of obvious that at the end of the day, these negative rates have been part of this extreme monetary stimulus, extremely loose financial conditions that's inflated a lot of bubbles and led to instability. The instability has been on the upside with the boom and, you know, credit bubbles and manias and such. Now we'll see the instability on the downside when, when these speculative bubbles burst. So, you know, anyway, I think the central banks, they know this is an experiment. I think when this is over, uh, I think the public's going to see this as an experiment that was unsuccessful. So I don't expect we're going to see a lot of negative rates down the road. And I think overall, this is going to be a very humbling experience for central bankers. And hopefully, they're going to have to return to traditional central banking, where you don't go out and just print money and 
intervene and, you know, manipulate markets and create negative interest rates and negative real rates. And, and they get back to the type of central banking that was proven stabilizing generally for the system for centuries. This week, our colleague Morgan Lewis um, referenced the euro chart, a long-term euro chart in our portfolio manager meeting discussions. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on the euro as Lagarde pivots. And do you see that has any repercussions for the gold market? Sure. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, you know, Lagarde, she was in an indefensible position. She just kept saying, you know, inflation's transitory and not an issue. And I was skeptical. A lot of people were skeptical, especially when you have 5% inflation in Germany, even higher in Spain and elsewhere. You know, David, over the years, I've, I've argued that I don't think uh, the euro at the end of the day is, is sustainable. I, I think down the road, the Germans and Italians will not share the same currency. It's different cultures. It's just different way of looking at money and credit and stability. So I fear the unfolding crisis, you know, one of the potential consequences will be stress on the euro. Uh, and when central bankers are so wrong on something so fundamental to sound monetary management, you know, and it's conspicuous to everyone, that's a pretty major hit to credibility for central banking. So this all kind of plays into our bullish view on gold. You know, I do subscribe to the view that the value of gold tends to correspond inversely to central bank credibility, right? When everybody's confident in central bankers, then why hold gold as much? So I feel we're moving in the direction of a crisis of confidence for both policymaking and financial assets more generally. And, and I think that bodes very well for gold and the precious metals. So all of these things are pointing to, you know, there could be some hiccups along the way. For example, we've seen this repeatedly in the markets in, in a de-risking, deleveraging environment. The hedge funds, they may have to temporarily liquidate some gold holdings so we could see a lot of volatility. But as a longer term store of value, the way I see things lining up, I personally much prefer hard assets to financial assets right now. No doubt about that. You mentioned the cultural differences between the various countries. A friend of ours used to call it a monetary Frank and Stein monster. So <laughs> I always liked that. Um, you know, Turkey comes to mind as an extreme example presently of currency instability, of rampant inflation and unsustainable cross-border debts. Are they different from the rest of the world by degree only? Well, Turkey enjoyed a heck of a boom. And now the hangover in this global bubble basically you know, gave Turkey a, a noose to hang itself, unfortunately. Um, so they now have this big inflation problem, you know, around 50%. They have a president who is content to fire central bankers until he finds ones that will, uh, you know, lower interest rates. So they've suffered a currency collapse and an exodus of international investors where they're a little bit different than a lot of countries is they have a lot of foreign denominated debt, a huge amount of foreign denominated debt. That's part of this periphery dynamic when there's all kinds of liquidity. Why not lend to Turkey, especially if you can lend to them in euros and dollars and get a higher yield? Well, that comes back to haunt you because Turkey now, they suffered a currency collapse. They have a lot of foreign debt, a lot coming due this year. And it's not so obvious where they're going to get the financial resources to make these payments. So, you know, the situation has re remained somewhat stable because of we've remained in, in global liquidity excess here. But now the backdrop's changing. We've seen changes at the periphery. Turkey's kind of at the periphery of the periphery. And I suspect 
that currency faces a really rough road ahead. There are certainly other turkeys out there, uh, but in a way, they're the poster child of excess at the periphery. And the first uh, major casualty of this change in, in this big cycle, uh, yes, I, I think it's fair to say they are different only by degree. Uh, here at home, you know, we at least have the advantage that we don't have to borrow in foreign currencies, but we've taken full advantage of loose finance and, and borrowed way too much as a lot of countries have, unfortunately. You know, that foreign denominated debt, you would think that banks would learn. We we even have one of the most significant political and financial powerhouses of all time, which collapsed because of this. You may remember the, the book, The Sixth Great Power, talking of Barings Bank and how they failed on the basis of, again, a cross-border lending, foreign denominated debt. The original sin, how is your debt denominated? And yet that's the part that seems to I just scratch my head. Is it really that we have such short memories that no one really looks at the history and says, oh, we're just kind of doing it again? Now, there's obviously differences between the U.S. and Turkey. I don't know that we're heading towards 50 percent annual inflation like Turkey, but we are surpassing 30 trillion dollars in debt. And now we're in a rising interest rate environment. So there's different versions of unsustainable. At what point does government begin to figure out that, in fact, this is kind of an end game? You run up debt, that's fine. As long as you can hold interest rates down from a cash flow standpoint, it seems to work. But now all of a sudden they're not in control of that. Interest rates rise, unsustainability. How do you think politicians uh, engage with this? Yeah, it's. They face a, a real problem. Debt has been growing tremendously. And then the pandemic comes and it's like this blow off. I think you know, non-financial debt up nine trillion dollars since the pandemic started. Uh, government debt, you know, uh, I think over two years, government debt increased 28 percent of GDP. Government debt's increased fourfold since 2007. I won't bore everyone with these ratios, but the ratios of debt to GDP, they're all at you know, record levels here in the U.S. It all seems sustainable, MMT, it all seemed sustainable as long as inflation stayed at the Fed's 2% target where it was supposedly magically going to remain forever. Uh, well, of course, it's not going to magically stay at 2% forever. So now they're faced not only with so much more debt, they also have this inflation problem after you know trillions of central bank monetization. It will not withstand much of a tightening cycle. And that's why I'm skeptical that the Fed will get very far with a tightening cycle. So my baseline is ongoing massive fiscal deficits, an inflating balance sheet, I'm doubtful of QT. Maybe they get started, you know, QT quantitative tightening. Maybe they reduce the balance sheet a little bit. I don't think that'll go over for very long. It was you know, I think it was a few years ago, David, I, I wrote something in the CBB, probably repeated it, that seemed outlandish at the time. And I said that I expected the Fed's balance sheet to inflate to $10 trillion during the next crisis. And this was basically just looking at the world, trying to get a sense for how much global speculative leverage there was. And when that speculative leverage unwound, when, when the hedge funds and others, the leverage players had to dump because of losses, who was going to buy? Only the central bankers. So the Fed, in a crisis environment, to accommodate de-risking, deleveraging, they would have to expand their balance sheet, I, I assumed, you know, about $5 trillion. Well, what happened instead, the Fed, well, we're at $9 trillion, they haven't made it to $10 trillion, but rather than accommodating 
speculative deleveraging. Rather than to take these positions from the leveraged players that are forced to sell and there's no liquidity in the marketplace, they injected this liquidity and they made the bubble only bigger. So, um, I don't know, it was a week or two I, uh, recently. Uh, actually, I think I might have mentioned it on the tactical short quarterly call. I, I'm revising that to $15 trillion Fed balance sheet only because the next serious de-risk and deleveraging, the Fed's not going to have any choice but to expand its balance sheet. How politicians respond during the next crisis, we'll have to wait and see. Do they also say, okay, let's just have more massive deficits? Do we finally get to the point where the bond market says, wait a minute, we don't like this game. We don't like this game. Uh, this is inflationary. We're going to get devalued forever. So we're going to protest. And then finally, politicians and central bankers have to respond to the bond market. We haven't seen that in a long time. I, I think it's inevitable. But uh, we'll just have to wait and see. But this is a dilemma with inflation rising like this, with speculative leverage where it is, and debt levels where they are. It's a bad mixture of negative fundamentals. I'm still reflecting on kind of the mixed signals in Europe last week. Bank stocks, higher, impressive year-to-date gains, yet the credit markets and credit default swap prices telling a different story. Can you venture a guess as to how one set of investors can disregard risk and another can keenly clue into it and begin the reallocation process? Yeah, and there, there are different games that are played in the marketplace. And the markets often say, you know, the, the bond market in general is more long-term thinking, right? It's concerned more about inflation and more long-term concerns, right? If you're going to lend somebody money for 10, 30 years, right, you have long-term concerns, considerations, et cetera. The stock market, short-term. <laughs> it doesn't worry about, you know, the, too far out into the future, right? Uh, well, what's the market going to do this afternoon? What's it going to do tomorrow? I think in this environment also, there's a big focus on these option expirations. We know there's been record put buying. That, that's exactly what I was thinking. Long-term concerns in the bond market, short-term concerns in the stock market. Is it like microsecond concerns in the option market? <laughs> it's just well, yeah. the nanosecond. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have an option expiration coming a week from Friday, for example. We know that there's been record put option purchases over the last few weeks. So the stock market, at least the more sophisticated guys, they're saying, okay, do we get the usual rally where the put buyers get crushed and they get forced into you know, selling their puts and unwinding hedges into expiration? So there's that gain because all of a sudden, if the markets start to rally, you, know, you can make a lot of quick money day trading those kinds of rallies, right? So the market gets really focused on that. Uh, if tech stocks are weak, the game is, okay, if tech are weak, buy financials, buy the banks. It's, you know, Pavlonian response there. Does that have anything to do with fundamentals? I think not, right? So the stock market is playing that game. Meanwhile, you know, the, the credit traders last week, they're seeing, oh my God, they're seeing a big unwind in leverage in Italian debt, Greek debt. They're seeing a big blowout in the price of insuring European credit. So that's a huge development for the credit players. So they're adjusting their position. They're seeing ongoing confirmation of, of a scenario that's not very comforting to them. So they're, they're taking some risk off the table. They're taking some leverage off the table. Meanwhile, the stocks, they couldn't care less about some European credit default swap prices, right? They, they're, it's a different game. So you can get these really strange dynamics. All note, we saw that in late uh, 07, right? We, we saw record stock prices in late 07 and, and stocks held up really well for part of 08, even though the credit markets were signaling, oh my God, we've got major issues unfolding here. 
You know, last week in, in our podcast, we talked about oxygen being removed from the room, illustrating the impact to financial markets of removing liquidity. This week, we've got Morgan Stanley estimating that QT will suck $2.2 trillion out of the financial system over the next 12 months. Is that enough oxygen removal to challenge the financial assets, you know, currently sitting at record levels? <laughs> Maybe $2.2 trillion's a low-side <laughs> estimate. That would do it. Yeah, and, and these bubbles, right, they need more credit. They, they need more of everything here. And if central bankers took out $2.2 trillion of liquidity, that's going to have a major impact on global liquidity. My framework is different here. I look at it differently. Uh, $2.2 trillion of QE is not the risk for the markets. To me, I don't expect that from central bankers. The risk to the market, the oxygen being sucked out of the markets, that risk instead is from speculative leverage globally. Carry trades in the emerging markets, right? Leverage trades in Turkey, Brazil, Russia. It's leverage trades in Italian bonds, Greek bonds, Spanish, Portuguese debt. It's leverage in treasuries, in U.S. investment grade, in U.S. high yield. We have speculative leverage, and not even to mention huge speculative leverage in China. So there's all this speculative leverage, and it works like magic as long as it's increasing. It keeps the markets liquid. But all of a sudden, if you have speculative deleveraging, if all of a sudden the leverage players, because they're losing money, because they're nervous, because they're risk averse, they start taking risk off the table. They start selling some of their leveraged positions. That sucks money out of the markets. That is what we've started to see. And when we start to see waning liquidity, weakening asset prices, which means you know higher bond yields, lower stock prices, that encourages others to say, okay, I better start pairing my risk. I better start de-risking, deleveraging. And then it starts to feed on itself. And that's how you have this sucking of liquidity out of the system. And that's why bubbles don't work well in reverse. Great point. QT, while it may be relevant, it remains to be seen if they'll actually go through with it. Meanwhile, deleveraging or an unwind of speculative leverage is something that does the same thing, takes the oxygen out of the room. One illustration, and you mentioned this earlier about options, and this is just one illustration of extreme behavior in the markets. We've got the increase in options trading. We've got, you know, Joe and Susie lunchbox trading options. And now we have actually occasionally the value of options trading surpassing the dollar value of underlying stocks they reference. I mean, <laughs> it's yeah, derivatives have always posed unique risks for the financial markets at this scale. At this scale, do you have any observations? Um, very concerned. So this mania in options trading, wow. Uh, I mean, it's got end of cycle, crazy, wild, speculative blow off excess written all over it. And I recall in early 1998, going back a ways, I remember recall, you know, reading a Financial Times article and it was highlighting the huge increase in derivative trading in Russian ruble hedging and Russian bonds. When I read that article, I grabbed it and I was telling everyone in the office, okay, this is a disaster. Because I knew, you know, Russia was in a very difficult situation, all this debt, and I knew if there was this big derivative overhang, that means one, that there's a lot of speculative interest in these instruments. A lot of people want to speculate in them. A lot of people want to leverage in these instruments. And they're counting on these derivatives, this flood insurance, in case all of a sudden you have torrential rains and they want protection. 
Okay. Well, if you write a lot of flood insurance and you have torrential rain, you better not go to the reinsurance market to try to protect yourself because all of a sudden there's not going to be anyone that wants to take that risk. So I really worry about the proliferation of hedging institutional retail. One, there's a lot of people speculating, right? Saying, oh, I'll take a leveraged bet on the upside of the market. Two, there's a lot of people that have these strategies. I'll take a lot of risk and then I'll just hedge it if necessary in the derivatives market. I'll just offload my risk to the derivatives marketplace. So you have a tremendous amount of risk that's simply offloaded from the market to the derivatives market, okay? So the thought is, okay, I'm I'm protected. So then the derivative players, what they have to do, they write this insurance, market insurance, but then if the market starts to go down and all of a sudden they fear that they could lose on this insurance, they have to short something, right? They have to short something to provide them winnings so they can pay against their losses of the insurance they wrote. And I know this gets a little complex, but it's called dynamic hedging. So basically, when the market starts to go down, they have to go out and aggressively sell to create positions to protect themselves. Well, if they've written a huge amount of this insurance, then they have to just sell like crazy when the market goes down and that selling feeds on itself and leads to illiquidity market dislocations. We've seen this repeatedly. We saw it, you know, 87, 94. We've seen it, you know, in 2008, et cetera. Also, there's a lot of people now that think that they can just protect themselves in the derivatives markets. So they think if the market starts to go down, they have these portfolios, they're just going to buy cheap insurance. Well, unfortunately, when the market starts to go down and the derivative players are under duress, you're trying to hedge themselves, the price of this insurance skyrockets and it's not easily purchased. So then these people that had this plan to hedge in the insurance market all of a sudden say, oh, no, I can't hedge. I got to sell for my actual portfolio. And that leads to just more cascading of sell orders. So I just look at this derivative market as this enormous, dangerous market distortion. It's fed risk taking. It's fed this misperception that people will be able to cheaply and easily protect themselves, which they certainly will not be able to in a crisis environment. And the big surprise here, even in the last few days, have been these breathtaking moves in individual stocks, you know, $250 billion loss in market cap in a single day for Meta, Zuckerberg's Facebook. And then the following day, Amazon records a different record, an increase of $191 billion in a single day. I mean, this is extreme volatility. You talk about trying to hedge, trying to offload risk. You know, what does this extreme volatility tell us about the market structure? Sure. And um, you know, I've worked through some pretty wild market environments, as you have, David. I could use the word unprecedented, which I use a lot. I, I won't use it here. I'm going to say this environment, it's unique. I've written about this. I you know, just recently had a piece, you know, Credit Bubble Bulletin, uh, where I talked about market structures. You know, I view current market structures, and I'll focus first, you know, the massive derivative speculating, all the leveraging, the speculative leveraging, the hedging, along with these, you know, the unprecedented speculative flows to the ETF complex, exchange traded funds. I just see this structure as being dysfunctional. And from my vantage point, such extreme volatility, it's indicative of an accident waiting to happen here. You know, I touched on this just a second ago. I, I, I clearly remember, you know, the role that portfolio insurance played back in the 1987 stock market crash. Derivatives, they were a key part of the bond market 
crisis in 1994 and crisis 90, 1997, the Russia LTCM crisis in 1998, uh, derivatives that played a major role in the 2008 financial crisis. We saw more recently in March of 2020, the role derivatives played, the role that big outflows out of the ETF complex caused just enormous volatility. So derivative markets, you know, they've grown significantly over the years. They've grown tremendously just since the start of the pandemic. And I've talked a lot about this in the past, you know, derivatives and contemporary finance. It works miraculously as long as finance is in abundance. You know, flood insurance works well as there's not a flood. As long as there's liquidity markets, uh, they don't dislocate. Policymakers have everything in control. But flood insurance works splendidly so long as there's not torrential rain this financial structure doesn't work in reverse. That's the problem. And now we're seeing these gyrations, right? We're seeing these crazy interday moves, these wild moves up and down in the week. A lot of it, derivative buying. One minute, a derivative dealer is selling if the market's going down. If the market reverses, all of a sudden, they're going to buy to rehedge their book. You've got the retail public buying calls. If the market goes down, they, they might dump their calls and buy puts. If the market reverses, they're going to dump their puts and buy calls. So this is just a system that it's acutely unstable right now. Unfortunately, that's the kind of instability, the uncertainty that you would expect to see, you know, leading into major changes of a trend. And, you know, we're seeing the type of volatility that I think confirms the thesis that we're seeing a secular change in, in the backdrop. I appreciate you mentioning dynamic hedging and how it has negative implications, even though it's meant to be a quote unquote portfolio insurance. In fact, you know, like throwing liquidity on a fire only to discover you're pouring gasoline and not water. Uh, it has the opposite than the desired effect. So dynamic hedging might be a catchphrase we come back to in the months ahead. You know, last month, the 60 40 portfolio split. You know, typical mix between stocks and bonds. It lost on both sides. It lost on both sides. You mentioned ETFs. We've got so many autopilot investors. Under what circumstance, whether it's the ETFs or that 60 40 split, under what circumstance would those investors continue to lose in spite of being diversified between stocks and bonds? In essence, what does diversification require now to adequately balance market risk? Sure. And David, your question, I immediately think of uh, Hyman Minsky, one of my favorite analysts of finance. And he would say, and framework is very complex, but he, you know, simplifying it is stability is destabilizing, right? If you create a stable environment, over time, you're going to have excesses that are going to make what appears to be stable, unstable. The 60-40 portfolio, geez, I mean, it's looked like just gold, right? You can make money on both, plus your treasuries you know, help hedge your equity risk. So you can't go wrong. So if you can't go wrong, you better do it in size. And why not do it in leverage, right? Why not leverage it? So that strategy has been converted into all kinds of all weather, you know, risk parity strategies and, and leveraged. And right now in my book, you can lose on both sides of that, stocks and bonds. It's one big trade. It's one, you know, I would see it's one big risky play on, on central bank management, unfortunately. And you know, I know for my family, I want to try to be truly diversified. I, I don't want to say that, oh, yeah, I can be diversified with some 60-40 portfolio because I want to be protected against various risks, including, you know, financial bubble risk, inflation risk, 
general financial and economic instability. So I, I look at you know risk much differently than someone would be that says, oh, I can buy a 60-40 portfolio and I, I'm protected against risk. So that, that doesn't protect against risk at all, the way I look at risk. So I want to have a hard asset component, precious metals, real estate and such. I want to have a significant cash component, dampen the volatility of my overall portfolio, gives me liquidity, take advantage of opportunities that I expect to present themselves, having that cash to protect under some potentially really negative scenarios. And today, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm not too concerned about making strong returns. My focus is on wealth preservation, which I, you know, I expect to be the prevailing focus for some time to come, the way this is all unfolding. And the 60-40 portfolio is not going to do it for me. Well, today the news flow highlights tensions between Russia over Ukraine. I just want you to imagine waking up tomorrow morning and overnight the PLA, People's Liberation Army of China, has, is, they've entered Taipei. Taiwan has lost independence to mainland China. And now we get to reimagine the world, supply chain constraints like we've never thought about. Talk about exaggerating inflationary pressures. Can you imagine globalization in full retreat? And doesn't that factor into, when you say diversification, doesn't that factor into a different way of looking at risk, hedging risk and diversifying? Perhaps we've lived with peace so long and with globalization trends moving one direction so long, we, do, we don't have the imagination for deglobalization and for potential war. Bring me back to the, the Noland diversification <laughs> in light of a surprise tomorrow morning, Taiwan's lost. Okay, David, and I want to begin by saying it's a little embarrassing for me to talk geopolitics with you. <laughs> For uh, you and Kevin's weekly commentary, because uh, you, you both are so knowledgeable and articulate. But uh, let me give it a shot here from my framework. One way I would look at this to start with, from the bubble framework, bubbles are mechanisms of wealth destruction and redistribution, right? We create all these new financial claims and the markets go up and economies boom. And it, it looks like you're creating all this wealth. But later on, when the bubbles falter, then you realize a lot of this wealth was just shifted to a small fortunate segment of, of the population of society, and you actually had a lot of malinvestment, overinvestment, and a lot of wealth destruction. So you have a lot of tension within society. That's one of the real risks of bubbles. My fear is we've had this global bubble, unlike anything in history, which means wealth redistribution and destruction on a global basis. So when I look at a global framework, I see social stress is an inevitable consequence of a bubble, domestic bubble, and I see geopolitical tension, conflict, a consequence of a global bubble. So it's only in my framework, unfortunately, you know, during when the bubble's inflating, you have integration, cooperation. Now that global bubbles are faltering, we're going to have the pie is shrinking. Everybody's going to fight for their piece of the pie, more disintegration, conflict. Okay, so Taiwan obviously is is right in the thick of this because when it comes to wealth redistribution and destruction, we're going to have issues with China. We're already seeing that, right? We're already seeing that. Taiwan's going to be a focal point of that. I fear China inevitably will go after Taiwan. Maybe it deflects some domestic issues. Maybe it's just, you know, something they just, she wants to accomplish. I wake up that morning and China has control of much of the global capacity for semiconductors. Wow, that is a problematic scenario. 
The markets are in a tailspin. It is complete, utter disarray in that scenario. I'm assuming, you know, there would be signs of that. We wouldn't wake up one morning shocked. We would see, you know, actions in the markets would have somewhat of an adjustment to get to that point. But that's a, a very problematic scenario. It'll only speed this deglobalization and those dynamics. It, it, it will make inflation an only bigger problem. It will make financial instability an only more acute problem. And that's part of this really negative scenario I fear that we could be moving towards. I hope I'm too dire, but unfortunately, there's too much evidence that that risk is growing. You know, olfactory fatigue is when you smell something over and over and over again and then begin to lose a sensitivity to that smell. Even if it is a, a nasty smell, you can grow used to it. I imagine a fishmonger or somebody who works in a cheese shop experiences that. It's almost like we have had that with the repeated Chinese incursions into Taiwanese airspace. To, to your point of, you know, perhaps this will be, you know, heralded by something. We'll see some leading indicators. To some degree, we do, and we've stopped paying attention. I mean, it, it once was one incursion a week, or maybe it's two incursions a month, and now it can be as much as 29 or 39 incursions in just a few-day period. It, the intensification factor's there, but I think the sensitivity to what's going on, unless you're in sort of public policy circles or international relations circles, I suppose if somebody at the CFR or, you know, something is, they're probably paying attention. But for the vast majority of people, I do think it may come as a surprise. You wake up and it just happens in a day. So as we finish, Doug, I appreciate your, your thoughts, your insights. If there's an investor listening to this today, what should they take away from this? What what are one, two, three concrete steps, the action list? Sure, David. Um, and you, you brought a memory to mind. Uh, I uh, paid my way through college working in a uh, salmon processing ship up in uh, uh, the off Naknek up uh, in Alaska. And, you know, after a couple of weeks, you didn't even smell the, the rotten fish, you know, <laughs> at all. You got so used to it. But I could smell it on my clothing when I got home for months, right? I'd wash the clothing, wash it and wash it, and I could still smell it. But when you're up there, you couldn't smell it. We're so used to this. We're so used to the financial excess. You know, we take it for granted that everybody's going to speculate like this. We think it's what's going on in the option markets and cryptocurrencies and NFTs. We, we think this is just the normal progression of things. None of this is normal. You know, central bank policymaking, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing normal about this. So we've got to get prepared for this new environment where I think things will return back more towards normal. But unfortunately, there's going to be one wrenching adjustment process in the markets, in finance, in policymaking. Unfortunately, we've got a lot of social, geopolitical issues, risk to deal with. So to me, it's time to hunker down. It's time to, you know, I think we're all used to, you know, it's so easy to buy an Amazon and, and not pay attention to how much we spend. And we all got to focus on getting our financial house in order, getting some debt paid off, getting our investment portfolios, getting the risk down. And I think just psychologically, just getting prepared ourselves, our families for more difficult times. And, and we can make this a positive. We can make this, a, you know, I'm, I'm going to spend a lot more time with my son in the garden. Uh, we're going to do uh, you know, a lot more biking, a lot more simple things, uh, more time in nature. But I just want to be ready the best I can and not be shocked when this 
potentially negative scenario unfolds. And again, I, I hope I'm just you know, way too negative. I hope everyone thinks back at this and, and laughs at this analysis. And preparing for a new environment. That's um, certainly a big takeaway. Paying down debt, uh, reducing risk in portfolios, and that psychological preparation. Uh, for you, it sounds like that includes uh, the orientation towards uh, spending time with people that you love, enjoying simple things. That's really not a uh, a catastrophic shift. That sounds like a very positive investment. And, you know, it, it may include mental toughening if you're, you know, throwing a hoe in the garden, but that's okay too. Good for the back, good for the time with your son. I think hunker down can take on a, a negative connotation, but in fact, there's a lot of really positive things that can occur in the context of, of creating that, uh, a more resilient psychological profile. So one last comment, I just want to throw this out. Um, you know, I'm an optimistic person to survive in the kind of work I've done for a few decades. You know, if I wouldn't have been an optimistic person, I would have never persevered. You know, so I think it's so important to stay positive as, as difficult as it is to wake up and, 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 you know, find something positive. You know, I'm going to think about, you know, what kind of cucumbers am I going to grow this year? What kind of fertilizer works best with those cucumbers? And I'm going to watch them grow and, you know, we're, we're going to do things like that and, and really, really work at trying to remain positive because that's going to be the key to having uh, fulfilling lives here is to remain positive. Well, we love the fact that our conversations internally happen with uh, a routine to them. And so much of the good things that we experience in life are the routines. They're repeatable. And so hopefully our listeners are thinking not just, you know, what do we do on the wealth management side in terms of the routines that reduce risk and, and increase the probability of, of, of a healthy total return, but what are the routines that I can put into place that are good for my mind, good for my heart, the books that I read, the conversations that I have with friends and family members, the routines in terms of physical exercise, all these things factor into that optimistic ideal that you're talking about, Doug. And there is no one I know on the planet who has more consistent routines and more discipline than you. So whatever it's applied to, as much as you're the master and king of the spreadsheet, you are also the master of routine. So, you know, I, a lot to learn from you. Thanks for joining us today on the commentary. David, it's so nice to be with you. And again, you know, thanks for everything. I love working with you and being part of the team. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck, along with David McIlvaney and our guest today, Doug Noland. You can find us at McIlvaney.com. That's M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y.com. And you can call us at 800-525-9556. <laughs> This has been the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. The views expressed should not be considered to be a solicitation or a recommendation for your investment portfolio. You should consult a professional financial advisor to assess your suitability for risk and investment. Join us again next week for a new edition of the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. <laughs>